Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you, and shalom. This is our Shabbat teaching of the Torah is for all people. On this Shabbat, we are at the crossing of the Red Sea. It's the portion called Beshalak uh, in the Torah. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. And there at um, verse 15. Beshalak means and let them go. And it has to do with the, fi the final days of leaving Egypt. Now, just to recap, um, in the last portion, we had the final judgments that fell upon Egypt, including uh, the death of the firstborn and the Passover. And at that point, Israel began to leave. And on the first day that they left, they set up their tents called Sukkot. And then they traveled, and we're now at the seventh day after that. They're at the edge of the Red Sea, and they're kind of blocked in. And Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's decided to come after them. The reason why I mentioned that first day that they left versus the seventh day now is because in the memorial that we do, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we have a high Sabbath on the first of those seven days, and then on the seventh day, we have a high Sabbath. And that is to mark, uh, to remember how our ancestors, when they left Egypt, the first day they began to dwell in Sukkot, and they were eating unleavened bread, the bread of haste, because they were leaving Egypt. And they traveled down until the seventh day, uh, where they got ready to cross the Red Sea. So part of our observance of the Feast of Unleavened is based on those two key events. Uh, transpired because once they cross the Red Sea, they're out of Egypt. They have nothing more uh, to do with Egypt. Uh, and they are now, uh, you know, headed for Mount Sinai where Moses and the Midianites used to be. Uh, so let's begin uh, there at uh, chapter 13. Let me read for you a bit, uh, recap uh, what we're going to see in this whole portion. Verse 17. Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. Specifically what this is saying is that the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, didn't follow along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been the most direct, straight route for them to go right up into the Promised Land. However, that land was inhabited 
and there were Amorites in there and a whole bunch of other peoples. And by them coming up that way, there would definitely have been war. And God knew they weren't prepared for war. They can't leave the situation and go right into a war. So he's got to take them in a way that is safe and secure that he can provide for them. Um, let me just for a moment, a lot, of, a lot of our Christian brethren, when they think about the end of the age, uh, they want to go the shortcut. Uh, they want to get to being with the Lord um, and in the Lord's presence as quickly as they can. And so they're looking for a shortcut. And it is called the pre-tribulation rapture. Before the great tribulation comes and so forth, we want to get out of here. And so let's have God rapture us out. Well, based on the ancient example, that's not how God saved his people. I mean, he could have raptured them into the land. He could have uh, led them this shortcut way, but he didn't. Instead, he took them through the great and terrible wilderness. And I submit to you that that's the same plan that God's going to do at the end of the age. His people will be preserved and protected, but we're going to go through the great and terrible tribulation before we get to the promised land. And that precedent of that pattern is set for us right here in this verse. Um, and so when I hear someone say, uh, well, I believe in the rapture, I remind them that God did not take the children of Israel by the shortcut or the shortest way to the promised land. They went the long way so that God could preserve and, and train them, essentially, to be his people in the kingdom. All right. With that said, uh, verse 18, Hence God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Now, martial array means it was kind of like they were marching out. They were in groups uh, they were, as they were marching out. The different tribes, people in various tribes, they would march out together. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones with me here. If you remember going all the way back in the book of Genesis, Joseph told his brothers, just like Jacob had wanted to be buried back in the land, Joseph wanted the same thing. He said, when your descendants have lived here and God brings you out, which he knew the prophecy that God said he would do that, he said, make sure you take my bones out, take me back to the land as well. So they were fulfilling the request and the prophecy of Joseph by doing this. I want you to take note of that. Here they are in key events, and they are fulfilling earlier prophecies. Now, these events of leaving Egypt, they are a prophecy for us too. And just as Jeremiah has said, the day is coming when you say the word Exodus, you'll not be referring to ancient Egypt, you'll be referring to specifically when God brings up his people from all over the nations of the world, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. So we know the historical story of coming out of Egypt is definitely a prophecy for a future one, just as the story of Joseph was a prophecy for those that left Egypt. So, they, um, and it says there in verse 20, then they were set out from Sukkot, and camped in Ethan of the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord was going before them in the pillar of the cloud by day 
to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light and that they might travel by day and by night. Now, they set up their sukkahs, but they kept moving. And the distance from there in uh, what we consider to be Ramesses and Sukkot in Egypt, they essentially went straight south. They didn't go east toward uh, the, um, the Arabia and the Sinai Peninsula. They went south. And when you go south, there's wilderness there. And there's also you come up with against the Red Sea, the real Red Sea. And it's very large. And they go down there. Now, at that point, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are saying, well, these people are lost. They don't even know how to go back to the land. And so they got the idea that they're lost and, and uh, so forth. That's going to come up here. Uh, verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before, and he rattles off um, the names here, between Migdal and the sea. Migdal was a well-known Egyptian fort. And we have an idea as to where that's at. And that Migdal used to protect Egypt from anyone invading from the south from the Red Sea. And you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. So there's a mountainous range, um, there's a wilderness area, and there's the sea. There, it's kind of a triangle of things that are there. And they were wandering aimlessly in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. This is what Pharaoh said about the sons of Israel. These people don't know where they're going. They are not on the journey back to the land of Israel. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now God was trying to instruct the Egyptians and Pharaoh with all of the different judgments. He was judging all the gods of Egypt. Now he has one final judgment for Egypt. He's going to show Egypt that he really is the Lord, and he's going to take the might and the power and the skill of the Egyptians, and he's going to destroy it right in front of them. Namely, the Egyptian army with their chariots, Pharaoh at the head, and he's going to destroy that and convince the Egyptians this really is the Lord uh, that was bringing the children of Israel up. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart, and uh, they said, What is this that we have done, and we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all of the other charioteers of Egypt with officers over all of them. This was the cream de la cream of the Egyptian army. This is the one that's going to come and do battle with God. And um, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them and all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside that location in front of Baal Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there was no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you this day, and you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This is a very interesting moment. And it sets a precedent for us throughout Scripture about when God's people see that they are being oppressed and that they're potentially going to be attacked. When it comes down to the point, well, wouldn't it have been better for us to have capitulated and not follow the Lord and we would still be alive versus we trust the Lord, we do what the Lord wants to do, but it may cost us our lives. This is the basic decision of every martyr. Every martyr has to make the decision. Do I want to capitulate and live, yield to the enemy, or do I want to stand up for the Lord and it probably cost me my life? Now, there is some interesting commentary that goes with this um, on the part of the sages, those that uh, uh, teach the Torah. And they, they say that we're actually four different dynamics going on here. The children of us were afraid. They're saying the things they're saying. And they're trying to come up with their own solution to their problem. Uh, one group said, let's just throw ourselves into the sea. We'll just kill ourselves. Throw ourselves in the sea. The other one says, no. Let's go back and serve Pharaoh. Let's go back and apologize for having left, and we'll, we'll go be his servants. There was a third group that said, no, let's fight. Then there was a fourth group, and I love this group. They were the ones who said, let's just pretend like this is not happening. And in the answer that's given by Moses, the statement that he's made here, He's addressing those kinds of concerns. He says to those, let us throw ourselves in the sea. He says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of God. And to those who said, well, let's do nothing. He says, no, the Lord will accomplish for you something today. You won't do anything, but the Lord will do something for you. And for those who said, well, let's just act like Uh, This is not happening. He says, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see them again forever. You want to act like you don't see them? Well, guess what? I got news for you. The Lord is going to make it where you never see them again forever. And then, of course, finally, he says, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. That's the answer to the ones that said they wanted to fight. That's where they get these dynamics. They see the answer that Moses gave And it was addressing what were the different concerns of the people. By the way, um, I've been at the business of of talking about the end times with many believers uh, over the years. And I can tell you that I have witnessed these exact same dynamics amongst believers in the world today. When you start talking about the end times and the possibility of the great tribulation coming and the Antichrist coming to power... And we're going to have to go through this terrible time called the Great Tribulation and all that's happening and the concerns and so forth. 
I have heard people actually make statements to the effect, well, I'll give up the faith. I have heard people say, well, we'll just give up the faith and we'll serve. You know, we'll, we'll just be citizens and whatever it is that they want to do. I've heard those stand up and say, well, I'm going to get me some more guns and some more ammo because I'm going to fight. And then I've had others who don't want to hear anything about the prophecy. I don't, just don't want to hear this topic at all. In fact, are you aware of the fact that the vast majority of American Christian churches doesn't want anyone to come in and teach the book of Revelation or about the end times to any of the people? There's a reason why Yeshua wrote those seven letters to the churches in the first part of the book of Revelation. Those are the issues that are amongst us. And we are descendants of the ancients. And just like we see what they did when they were confronted with Pharaoh's chariots and the Red Sea blocking them, we, we can see all of the different expressions of concern and uh, their ideas as to what in the world they think they should do. And we have the same dynamic going on today at the end of the ages. And by the way, it will get worse. As we get closer, this will become a prevalent and very dominant thing. The message that Moses is going to give here is the same message that we need to hear for ourselves in the day that we live. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Now here is what makes this verse so interesting. In the Hebrew, it actually says, do not fear, stand by and see the Yeshua of the Lord. That's the name of the Messiah. Moses, way back a long time ago, spoke the name of the Messiah and said, see what he does. And I'm telling you here today, the same statement makes perfect sense for us. Stand still and see what Yeshua is going to do. Now, in our particular case, I'll tell you what Yeshua is going to do. He's going to be coming back with his forces, with the armies of heaven. And he's going to be coming back to deal with his enemies. And by the way, the way that Pharaoh and his chariots were wiped out at the Red Sea, you can be assured that God's going to do the same thing with his enemies. However, the one difference is this. God has said, in times past, I judged you with water, but this time I'm going to judge you with fire. And so we see the water as the vehicle to destroy the Egyptians, and we know that the Messiah comes back with a consuming fire this time. Do you see the patterns? You see how it lines up? It's really a prophecy to us. It's an ancient story about where we came from and why we are Israel and the promises and covenants that we have, the promises of God for even to the days that we live today. But it also is speaking yet still to our future. I'm here to tell you, this is one of the evidences that God wrote this. God says of himself from the prophet Isaiah, I'm the only one who can tell you the end while telling you the beginning. 
And here we have the description of the beginning of the nation of Israel, and it's telling about what will be happening at the end to the nation of Israel. Only God has the wisdom to be able to do such a thing as that. Verse 18, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, so will the whole world. They will finally know who is the Lord. And in fact, as the scripture says, every knee will bow and declare that he is the Lord um, when he comes back in the final end. So God then instructs Moses to stretch out his hand and the Red Sea is parted. And the children of Israel go across on dry land. Now, the reason why that's such an interesting statement is, think about this for a moment. When you part the Red Sea, the water goes away. It's a little bit like, you know, the water that went down the street, it rained. Well, the, the rain stops, the water stops flowing, but the street is still wet, isn't it? Well, you would think that the water that was there in the crossing point, it would still be wet on the ground. I mean, isn't there silt and mud and other things like that down there? Wouldn't everything still be wet if they parted the sea? But he says, no, specifically, he said, not only did I part the Red Sea, but I made the ground that you walk on dry and firm. That is what makes the story stand out. Uh, it's not just the nostrils of God blew open the waters. It's that he also made the ground dry so nobody's walking through mud or slipping and sliding as we go across the Red Sea. So they make their way across the Red Sea, and the reason why they were able to accomplish that is because the pillar moved around behind them and then shielded them from the Egyptians. The Egyptians could not attack the edge of the camp because the pillar went out there and blocked them. Now, we're not quite sure exactly how that happened, just that he stood in between them and blocked them. If you remember the movie by Cecil D. DeMille's of uh, the Ten Commandments, why the pillar made fire go out on the ground and blocked the horses and chariots and so forth. I don't know if that's what really happened, but, but in any case, that seems reasonable that somehow we'd set some kind of perimeter. And so the pillar did that. And so they cross over, and then once the children of Israel have made the crossing, then he withdraws the restraint, and the Egyptians rush in to the same ground where Israel had been crossing. And once into the middle of there with the Red Sea, he allowed the waters to come back and to destroy the Egyptians, and they drowned. There are different uh, theories uh, about the path and the journey and where exactly did the children of Israel cross the Red Sea. Um, some are saying that actually it was the Gulf of Aqaba uh, down at the Straits of Turin. Some are saying no, it was farther north from there across essentially the Gulf of Aqaba. Some are saying, oh, it was the Bitter Lakes, which was to the north of the Red Sea. It was a shallow area and so forth. All of these have different problems. Uh, not the least of which is taking this number of people and traveling at those distances doesn't seem to logistically work out. In other words, going down to the Bitter Lakes seems it would work. That's within the range where they go. But you go down the Straits of Turn or cross all the way over the Sinai Peninsula, for that number of people, it would have been a virtually impossible thing to be done, even traveling day and night. 
But going down to the Red Sea is, is precisely at a walking pace, the time and the distance that it would take. So that when they do cross, it really is the Red Sea, which is a wide part of the Red Sea. And so that's maybe the reason it took them all night to cross. We're not talking about a narrow waterway. It was a very wide waterway, and it took them quite a bit of time to get across. Not only, um, even if the thing had been very wide and many people had crossed over, that, that's still a long distance to cross, and it took them all night to do it uh, for it. Those are, again, elements that uh, make for intriguing investigation into this ancient story uh, to understand how God actually accomplished this. But what I want you to take note of in the description that's given for us here of their journeys is there are three locations where, beginning here, at the Red Sea. The Red Sea, by the way, is salt water. It's ocean water. They're in the wilderness of Egypt, and they're going to confront the Red Sea, which is salt water. They're going to journey, after they cross the Red Sea, they're going to journey to the wilderness of Shur, and there they're going to come up to bitter waters. And there will be an incident in which that uh, Moses will have to cast a tree into the waters to cause them to become sweet instead of bitter so that they can drink them. And finally, they're going to move into the wilderness of sin on their way toward uh, Mount Sinai, not quite Mount Sinai, but on their way to it. And this time they'll get water from the rock, which will be clean, pure water. So they're going to go through three stages of waters. And this is noteworthy, the first being salty, which you can't drink, uh, the second is bitter. You can drink it after it's been dealt with. And then the third one, you can drink completely because it's pure, clean water. And there's a little commentary that goes with that, that that's part of the progression of you in the faith, particularly when it comes to coming to Torah and coming to obeying the Lord. Usually, uh, we come out of a life of sin, and you might as well be drinking salt water for how healthy it is. Then you go through this transition of where you turn back to the Lord, and there's such a radical change from the other. It's not salt water, but it's bitter. It's difficult. And then finally, you get to the point where you have good, clean, pure water to do it. And as you know, the children of Israel will ultimately come and be baptized in the waters that flowed out of the rock. Now, there's two incidents about getting this clean water out of the rock. This first one that we're going to get, Moses is specifically instructed to take his staff and strike the rock. And he will, and waters will come out. The second incident, we'll learn later on in another Torah portion, is that he's told to speak to the rock, but Moses, following what he's done before, will become angry and he will do what he did the first time and he will strike the rock again when the Lord did not instruct him to do that. Instead, he instructed him to speak to it. We will talk about that portion when we get to there, but I wanted you to simply take note of there's going to be two times of the water coming from the rock. This is going to be the one where he's going to strike uh, the rock. And that's essentially what our portion 
is now talking about. But there's some commentary here uh, after they crossed the, the Red Sea. They are now officially out of Egypt once they cross the Red Sea. I believe they are in the Arabian Desert. The, the names for these different wildernesses, these are ancient names for what is known, well known to be the western part of Saudi Arabia. Uh, on the, on the, excuse me, in, in the Sinai. And moving over into Arabia when you get to the wilderness of Sin that's in Arabia, it's not in the Sinai Peninsula. So they cross over into the Sinai Peninsula, they travel across, get over to the Sinai, which is in Arabia, and that's where the water from the rock is at uh, for them uh, that, will, that will help them uh, before they go into the place called Rephidim, which is where Mount Sinai is specifically located. I'm looking now at chapter 15, and there, if, if in your Bibles, if you'll look, from essentially uh, verse 1 through uh, verse 18, I don't know if your Bible does this, but mine does it, it's indexed in. In other words, instead of being the far left justification, there's like a margin. There's an index. The margin is increased, and it's indexed in like you would do on the first line of a paragraph. Only every line is indexed in. The reason that's done is because what we're actually reading here in chapter 15 is poetry. That when you read the Hebrew text, you're actually looking at poetry. And this is like the, the, the lines to a song. It's like the lyrics uh, to a song. So I'm going to read this, and I want you to kind of in the back of your mind, remember this is poetry, and it's being expressed in a very unique way. Uh, that if you'd heard this in the Hebrew, you would have gotten a kind of a, a reaction to it because it would have been presented very melodically uh, to you. Uh, and it begins in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Remember I said this was in a lyrical form? Here he is. He's, these are the words to a song. By the way, that song, those words that we have here, that's a very common messianic song in our assemblies. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you, but if you're in a messianic assembly, you say the horse and rider song, everybody, everybody basically knows it. Uh, in fact, it's one of the songs that's usually sang at a Passover Seder um, when we observe the Passover continues to go on. This is my God, I will praise him. My Father's God, I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his array he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down in the depths like a stone. The right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. The right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy." And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. 
my desire shall be granted against them. I will draw out my sword, and my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, and doing wonders? Now that verse 11, that is another very common messianic song that have been made into music that we sing in our assemblies. Here we are, this generation, singing the song of deliverance, singing the song of Moses. We believe Moses wrote this. By the way, the prophecy says that the last generation will sing another song of Moses, but it's called the Song of Moses. Because, you see, the last generation is going to go on another exodus and be delivered. And this song of deliverance that was sang in the ancients will be sung by us in the end as well. Another song of Moses. And that's given to us later on in scriptures for us to sing when that day comes. There's tremendous connections here. Uh, and it's assessing how the enemy came against it and the Lord prevailed and the Lord was able to deliver his people. Verse 12, Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. And in thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitations. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were amazed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as stone. Until thy people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over, thou hast purchased. The, uh, let me comment on that for a moment. There, there are three names that are given here. There's the people in Philistia. Now that's along the Gaza Strip. The people in Edom are in southern Jordan, the Edomites. And Moab is up in the northern part of Jordan. These are lands that are around the land of Israel. These are neighbors to the land of Israel. And as a result of crossing the Red Sea, the word will be getting out to all these people. And basically the song is saying this is one of the effects of crossing the Red Sea it did. It sent a message to all of the potential enemies of Israel, those that bordered on Israel, and it sent a message to them and says, the God that we serve is far more powerful than the entire Egyptian army. And therefore, you don't have a chance either. Because the Egyptian army basically could run over any of those nations. And in fact, there's historical events where the Egyptian army, when they were fighting the Hittites up to the north, they would go through those countries and there wasn't anybody to stop them. The Egyptians could go as they please throughout all that region of the world. Well, here you have this testimony that God wiped out the Egyptian army. So who in the world are these powerful people and how in the world were they able to do that? So the enemies, the, the future neighbors of the land of Israel have just gotten the message 
you better look out. You better be shaking in your boots because these people are coming toward you. And that's part of the message of the crossing of the Red Sea. Verse 17, thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Now there's some direct references there to the land of Israel, specifically to Jerusalem. Although it's not calling it Jerusalem, it's the place where God makes his permanent dwelling here in Israel on the land. And it, we will have to wait till we get to King David before that becomes fully manifest as to where is this place where God's house and his dwelling, a permanent dwelling, will be. If you recall, he's getting ready to build a tabernacle and he will dwell in that tabernacle like the children of Israel, a temporary dwelling. But the day will come when the ark and the things that were in the tabernacle will be brought to Jerusalem and they'll be installed into a temple that David collected materials for and King Solomon built. And that will become the tent. And here is Moses prophesying that this is what will be happening. And for us, by the way, it remains true for us as well. When the Messiah comes back, uh, this is going to be a shock for some people. He's not coming back to Washington, D.C. He's not going to come back to London, England. He's not coming back to Berlin or Rome. And shock of shocks, he's not coming back to Salt Lake City either. He's coming back to Jerusalem. And if you want to go see the Lord, that's where you'll go to see him, which is the original plan from Moses. So the words of Moses are still taking effect today. If I was looking for an example uh, that says why the Torah is for all of you. Not only would I be encouraging you about there's going to be another exodus at the end of the age, and you're going to be a part of it, but I also would tell you that Jerusalem is going to be the city of the king, and that's where you're going to go see the Messiah, Yeshua. He's not going to come back as a pastor, First Baptist, or wherever you're at, or the head of the Catholic Church. He's coming back as the king of Israel, the king of kings, lord of lords. And that's where he will reign forever, Moses says, from there. So it strikes me that as we read this portion, uh, since our theme in this teaching is the Torah is for all people, this should be penetrating your heart. You should be coming to terms with how relevant these prophecies and this story is to our faith today. These promises still exist. So he continues in verse 19 after he's done this song. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land throughout the midst of the sea. And Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the, uh, the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he is hurled into the sea. And by the way, in most Messianic congregations, when they do this, you will see ladies get up and dance to this in most Messianic congregations. 
just as Miriam did there, we're still dancing to this song, the song of Moses, uh, talking about God's deliverance in those days. Verse 22, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went there three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter, therefore it was named Merah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statue and regulation where he tested them. The Lord, actually, we could say the word test, we could say that this is where the Lord began to train them. Uh, when I was in school, one of the things that we used to do when we would go through a unit of learning, it would result in a test. You always got tested after you, you know, the old joke, you know, when you're trying to give information to somebody and say, hey, there will be a test on this later. You know, you're trying to get them to pay attention, learn the information. And that's kind of what this context means. When he says he tested them, he was actually training them that led to, let's examine your behavior, see if you've learned what I've said. And so, and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Now, at this point, you might ask the question, well, what commandments are you referring to, Lord? Because we're not at Mount Sinai yet. The Torah hasn't been given. But it is understood, originating with Abraham, that Abraham continued to pass down what he perceived to be the commandments of the Lord. And in fact, one of the testimonies of Abraham was that he was faithful in keeping all the commandments of the Lord. He innately knew the commandments before they were given at Mount Sinai as a corporate set of commandments. He could sense the personal level of the commandment. He knew in his heart that which was right and correct. By the way, in our faith today, even though the Ten Commandments have been given as a corporate set of commandments for all of Israel, we too are expected to be like after the example of Abraham and those that came out of Egypt. We're supposed to instinctively know what are the commandments of the Lord in our heart. Once you come to know the Lord, you accept the Lord, one of the things that comes with it is the Holy Spirit that instructs you and will convict you of sin and give you guidance as to the path you should go, what you should obey, what you should do, and so forth, uh, according to the choices of your life. And we hear the children of Israel, Moses is saying, get it in your heart right now, before you even know what all the detailed commandments, get it in your heart right now that you're going to obey the Lord. And by the way, uh, let me just add this further. I think this is a major step in, in spiritual maturity for believers. And this is particularly becomes acute when you have someone who comes to terms with the Torah and accepts the Torah as the commandments of the Lord. There has to be this moment in your heart where you make the following agreement with God. I will obey the Lord. If you don't make that statement before you learn the commandments, 
then what you're always going to be doing is negotiating with the Lord about which commandments you have to keep. And I see way too many Christians who, when they're confronted with the commandments, they say, oh, I don't think that commandment applies to me. They want to argue against the commandment. Let me tell you why they argue against the commandment. It's not about theology. It's that in their heart, they've never made the decision yet, I will obey the Lord. I understand the Lord is there. I understand He saved me. I understand He loves me. I know He wants me to obey Him. But I haven't quite made the decision I'm going to obey. Now, let me emphasize something here. Uh, in Christian theology, we emphasize salvation by faith. In other words, we, we guard against anybody trying to say, well, I've done righteousness, and that's the reason why I'm saved. You're, you're not saved because you've done any good deeds. You're not saved because you, you obeyed. All kinds of people in the world that don't believe in God accidentally obey the Lord. They do, but they don't necessarily know it's the Lord. But a believer, a person who has come to terms with the Lord, has to make this fundamental decision. Okay, I'm calling you Lord, therefore I'm going to do what you say. If He's going to be Lord in your life, you have to do what He says. And people who come to the Torah, this is one of the basic things that they do. Oh my gosh, you know, here's all these commandments. I'm, I have to follow them. If they apply to me, I have to follow them. Now, in the education that you get from the Torah, you'll discover that out of the 613 commandments that are in the Torah, they don't all apply to you. In fact, they don't all apply to anybody. It turns out that there are specific commandments for priests. If you're not a priest, those commandments don't apply to you. There are specific commandments that have to do with men versus women. If you're not of that gender, then that commandment doesn't apply to you. If you're a father, uh, there's certain commandments for you. If you're a husband, there's certain commandments for you. A wife and so forth. It doesn't apply to children or other people. It turns out that the set of commandments that truly applies to everyone, no matter who you are, what station of life you're in or whatever, comes down to ten commandments. Ten commandments apply to everyone. And that's exactly how God will teach the Torah and give the Torah to the children of Israel. And in this particular case, we begin the training program. He begins to test them to see if they'll follow his voice, follow his instructions. If you will give heed to my voice, he says, then good things are going to happen to you. In this particular case, the promise is, I'll keep the disease of the Egyptians off of you as a motivation and a reason to keep the commandments. By the way, the Israelites were aware of those kinds of diseases they had and certainly did not want to have them or be any part of them uh, at all. So the, um, they're on their way, and, and here's what we're getting ready to be faced with. The first was the lack of water. By the way, uh, you don't have to take advanced survival training to know this. If you go out in the wilderness, you're going to need water. Okay? You're going to need a lot of water. In fact, the average man on a daily basis needs at least two gallons of water a day. 
in the course of drinking, eating, bathing, and so forth. The minimum amount is about two gallons a day. The average woman, it's about a gallon and a half. The average child, one gallon. That's a lot of water, uh, maybe not for one day, but that's a lot of water for your family that's got to be there day after day after day after day. So when God is going to be supplying water for what we estimate to be approximately 3 million people that came out of Egypt, this is going to be a lot of water he provides for them for it daily. And then down in chapter 16, they're going to be hungry because they're going to run out of their food. They lasted about a month. They carried food out of Egypt, and it lasted only a month. We see this here, chapter 16. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation, the sons of Israel, came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. They were one month since leaving Egypt. They've run out of food. Three million people have consumed all the food they were able to carry with them, and they ran out of food in one month. I will not be shocked at all if in the greater Exodus that the people who escape, that the first month will be eating whatever we carried out with us. And after that, we'll need food, uh, just like our ancestors needed it. And this is when God will introduce bread, manna, to the children of Israel. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread uh, from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And the way God set this up was he put bread out there, put manna out there every day except on Sabbath. To reinforce, to keep the Sabbath, he said, I'll give you a double portion on the sixth day and that will carry you through the Sabbath. And we're going to see if the people will obey. Now, apparently the way this used to work was it would come down like the dew. And, you know, if you get up early in the morning and see the dew, and then as the sun continues to rise and become warmer, the dew evaporates. Well, apparently this dew would then turn into this flaky material. And it was like all over the place like dew had been. And you would scrape this flaky material off. And it's kind of like a, a processed, if you will, flour meal. And they could take it like it was that and do different things as though it was like flour or a grain meal of some sort. It was bread, meaning it, you could make bread out of it. And uh, they would then boil some of it. They would uh, make dough out of it and, and bake it. They would do a variety of things to make that as a food. I can assure you that bread was highly nutritious uh, because with that bread, uh, they were able to get the basic minerals and the basic vitamins that they needed to live for the period of time they were going to be out in the wilderness. Now, the next thing they wanted was some meat. You know, apparently uh, having meat in the evening and bread in the daytime was a needed thing. So God brings the quail to them. So God has supplied to them water, uh, bread in the form of manna, and quail meat for them to be able to eat uh, for that. And he's covering the basics. 
that are needed for them to do it. Now, God knows that you need these basic things to make it through a wilderness experience. I remind you of this because the day's coming, if we are on the Great Tribulation and we're journeying, we're going to need water, we're going to need food. We're going to need the necessary food to sustain us and to keep us strong and healthy. God knows that. God's been in the business of supplying that which is needed. Otherwise, he puts it in a place where we can grow our own and we can you know, process it ourselves. But in this case, he had put them in a situation where God had to step up to meet those needs for it. The, uh, the, the term manna um, is, is actually means ma, what, manna, what is this? And um, the, uh, there's been a lot of um, husbands who have experienced eating manna. And when their new wife fixed them something for supper and they look at it and they haven't seen anything like that before and they go, manna, what, what is this? That's, that's a little private joke. Okay. Husbands know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and, but I will tell you there's a spiritual application that comes across for us in the faith. Yeshua, in talking about that he was a bread, that he too was a bread from heaven. And the people, and he said, but the bread that I give to you, you'll never be hungry again. You eat of me, you eat of this bread, you'll never be hungry again. It'll meet your needs forever. And of course the people said, well, give us this bread. And he said, well, I am the bread. And part of us uh, enjoying the Passover memorial and eating the Afikoman bread is to remember also the bread that supplied by Yeshua, the manna that came from heaven, that when we eat of it, we'll never be hungry again. We will have, we'll never hunger and thirst for righteousness again. We will have the righteousness of God to be part of our life. Very powerful comparison here. The average Christian um, um, has communion service, a little piece of bread, a little cup, and uh, they do communion with the Messiah. Great. But many of them don't realize that that bread and that cup originates from the Passover, and part of the instruction about that bread is about manna that was given by God freely for the people when they were traveling through the wilderness. Another evidence that the Messiah was present with them in the camp. And he can be present with us in any future camp that we're going to be a part of. All right, so we come back to, uh, he's been supplying all of these basic needs uh, for them. And it finally comes down to the point where uh, they keep the Sabbath, and then they come to a place where they need water. This is where Moses goes out, strikes the rock, gets the water that they're needed. Chapter 17, uh, he says, Then all the congregations of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. They ran out of water. And the people began to complain, and they complain against Moses. And, of course, Moses is saying, why are you complaining against me? Your complaint's against God. I'm not the one that supplied the water before. It was God, remember? So why don't you go and ask God about the water? 
And I think the lesson was God wanted people to ask him. And one of the very, very important lessons spiritually is as you grow in the faith, stop asking other men and other teachers to teach you. Stop asking them to meet your spiritual needs and start asking the Lord directly. Build a relationship with God where if you need water, ask him for it. You need food, you need uh, instruction, you need deliverance. Ask him for it. Uh, don't look to me. When we get in the great trip, don't be looking at me to deliver you. I'm not going to be able to deliver you. I'm relying on the Lord to deliver me, and you should do the same thing. This is a very important lesson. This is one of the first lessons that God is trying to teach our ancestors in the wilderness. All right, that's going to bring us to a conclusion for this Sabbath. And next Sabbath, we're going to take up the portion of Yithro, where the children of Israel will get the Ten Commandments. They'll get the Torah given to them. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and Shalom.